Coming up this hour, we're going to discuss the uh, looting last night in Chicago and then be joined by Jimmy Fowler, executive pastor at Redeemer Fellowship Church in St. Charles. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, just some housekeeping. Remember, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, online, 1160hope.com, and get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. It's another Monday, Ian. How was your weekend? Uh, all well in the Simpkins house? I don't remember. It's uh... <laughs> I don't remember. It's all... It's all a blur. Let me think. Mm, yeah, it was lovely. We had a good weekend. Wonder. It was Wonder. it was hot. We spent a lot of time just outside on the patio and playing with the kids. My uh, my children. We have a, a bit of a sandbox under the treehouse, and I'm convinced that they think it's like cinnamon sugar because they just eat it all day long. <laughs> so if you like turn your back on them for a second, they come back and they're just covered in like a mix of sand and mud and twigs and uh, so lots of baths, lots of or <laughs> spraying nice. them down. Yeah, a lot a lot of that going on this weekend. How about you? Oh, great weekend. It's always fun just to take it easy with the family a little bit. Went to my brother-in-law, sister-in-law's house yesterday with a pool. And uh, so, yeah, a, a good weekend all around. Although now people are just thinking that the uh, the Simpkins house sounds good with a, a sandbox and a tree house. That's a, that that's a, sounds like a good setup you got over there. Yeah. People are going to be dropping their kids off at your house. That's all that's going to happen I'm now. Sure they will. <laughs> Hopefully you all had a great weekend. Some crazy weather here in the Chicagoland today. Hope you're doing well. I did want to start uh, just with uh, the difficult story from overnight. I'm sure uh, we all woke up and and were kind of surprised if you were like me to hear uh, that there had been widespread looting uh, around the Chicago around the city of Chicago last night. And uh, yeah, when I first saw that, I was like, man, what's going on? And so some background to this, Mayor Lightfoot just recently tweeted, there's a false rumor going around that police officers killed a 15-year-old on Sunday. Instead, here's what happened. Officers responded to 911 calls of an armed man in Englewood. A 20-year-old suspect fired at officers and gunfire was exchanged. The suspect is in uh, stable condition. And she went on. But off of that, uh, there was just some really widespread sad looting uh, that happened. And, you know, I'm just curious, uh, you know, when you woke up, I'm sure, and you saw the imagery, just kind of what went through your mind as you saw that? Oh, man. I I mean, this is heartbreaking anywhere, but you feel a certain a certain level of ownership, even out in the suburbs. That's the thing that I don't know that people realize if they're not from here. Like, we feel a sense of, at least I do, I guess, like a shared ownership. Like, it happened in Chicago is like it happening yeah. out here. Even though, like you and I have mentioned, there can be sometimes, unfortunately, a bit of a disconnect just because, you know, 30 miles west can create kind of a barrier there. But the, it was hard. I was encouraged to see so many pastor friends from the city uh, posting articles that weren't inflammatory or posts that weren't inflammatory, but more like we, we need to be a people of prayer, but also prayer that leads us to action. Like, Lord, hear yeah. our prayer. Like, God, give us wisdom and how to navigate this. But like, you know, the images of not only the, the broken windows, but of the bridges up. And yeah, um, I don't know, man, it, uh, it, it was disheartening. It sort of threw off my equilibrium this morning a little bit. Absolutely. Me too. Because also because it wasn't like anything built to it like that I hadn't seen on the news last night, obviously, or anything. I do want to hear uh, just a little bit from the press conference today with Police Chief David Brown and Mayor Lightfoot. 
Uh, so I just want you to hear uh, just this about two and a half minutes, and then we will talk some more about this. Here's that press comment. It, it almost sounds as though you're saying this is the reason we have it is because the courts and the prosecutors were not doing their job, that they were going too easy on the looters from the last time around. Is, uh, don't don't take you? it from me. Just go by what's been done. I'm just asking I, I don't, I don't want to do your job for you, but just go by what's been done. There was, there were no consequences for the people arrested. Greg, let's be clear. Don't bait us, okay? No, I, I, just, is, no, I, I was asking. Do, do not bait us. Don't, do not bait us. This is a serious situation. People are concerned about their safety. Officers are concerned about their safety. So don't bait us. What we're saying is, as a result of what happened last night, there have to be consequences. We've got teams of people that are aggressively out there identifying the people responsible, looking at the, the plates, and we're going to bring them to justice. But when we do, and we do make those arrests, our expectation is that this is going to be treated with a level of seriousness that it should be, period. Don't try to bait us, mischaracterize, pit one against the other. We're not playing that. We are in a serious situation here, and we need a serious response. That's what we're saying, period. I'm not trying to bait you, Mayor. I'm just asking you a question that, that seems Ask to an address. Answer. You have another question? Yes, I do. You, you talked a little bit about it, but several questions have come in. You know, how do you convince people uh, and businesses downtown that it's safe to be here? So we explain that we're committing uh, our off days of our officers are canceled. Officers are committing to working 12-hour shifts to not only protect the downtown, which is important, but just as important are our neighborhoods, so we can have enough resources to uh, obviously anticipate what happened before. Once we take care of downtown, then the looters before, back in May and June, went to the neighborhood retail areas uh, to commit uh, looting. So we're anticipating all that and committing enough resources to our downtown and to our neighborhood areas to protect both, it, because, it, because both are important. It is is there intelligence to suggest that the neighborhoods are being targeted or will be targeted? No, the precursor to what happened before happened last night. That, that's the intelligence. All right, man. So not surprisingly, reporters, I think, doing their job are linking this to the earlier looting of a couple months ago. And uh, just wondering again how uh, uh, you're, you, you know, when you see looting going on versus the protests and a lot of people get those intermixed. What is it that you want people to know, protest versus looting, and how you kind of differentiate the two? I, I don't know that I know how to do that, to be honest. Okay. I, I think the people that I know who are protesting, and, and a lot of them, I, what a lot of people don't realize is that there's still organized protests going on probably seven days a week around Chicagoland. Peaceful protests, organizing right. around a common theme or an idea like hungry for change, doing so in a way that, um, you know, for the most part tends to be safe. Some of them are like downright family friendly. That's right. Uh, I also want to be careful, I guess, not to in any way superimpose my narrative or experience or even like my moral compass. The, the looting in general, especially the one last night, feels like in some ways um, – when everything was really kind of erupting with George Floyd, we, we expected almost to see these things on the news all the time. And this is part of what I mean by the disconnect. Like there is a certain sense of like out here, like we even just said it, like 
Oh, really? Oh, that came out of nowhere. It absolutely did not come out of nowhere. That's it only feels like that to our sensibilities out here. But, you know, with the kind of violent month we had in July and uh, I think in some senses it feels like people not knowing what to do with their anger, to be honest. Um, And there's also other things and we don't have a lot of time to take a deep dive into this. There's been a, a number of reports, it seems nationwide, a lot of the people most responsible for the destruction are in no way even connected to the protests mm-hmm. that they're, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying this is everywhere, but it seems like there's now numerous cases mounting of people who were sort of taking advantage of the crowd yeah, or of the energy. And I'm like, well, that's, that's even more unfortunate than if someone that doesn't care about the cause at all, but it's just coming into, you know, stir a little chaos. I think, I think that's disheartening too. That's certainly what Mayor Lightfoot got at in her press conference a little bit today saying, no, we're going to, we're going to try to prosecute people and arrest them to the fullest because she was basically saying this. This was different from the peaceful protest. This was opportunistic. This was criminal. And uh, she kind of came in uh, uh, kind of hard on it. And so uh, very interesting. I know this has a lot of emotion. We would love to hear what you've got to say about this. You can do that at our Facebook page, uh, The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, an interview we're excited for coming up next, Jimmy Fowler executive pastor at Redeemer Fellowship Church in St. Charles. He's going to join us for two segments next here on The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us on this Monday afternoon. As we often say, Ian and I, you know, we've got lots to say. We like talking to each other, but what we've really enjoyed about this show Uh, over the year and a half that we've been doing it, is having just guests on, other pastors, ministry leaders, people uh, that we like to talk to. And with that in mind, we are really excited to be joined by Jimmy Fowler. Jimmy, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Thanks, Ian. Appreciate you guys having me on. Absolutely. We appreciate you taking the time. Why don't you introduce yourself uh, to our audience? Yeah, uh, my name is Jimmy Fowler. I am the executive pastor over at Redeemer Fellowship in St. Charles, Illinois. I also uh, co-host a podcast with uh, Joe Thorne, who's also the lead pastor at Redeemer Fellowship. Uh, and so Joe and I have been doing a podcast called Doctrine and Devotion for a couple of years now. Uh, we release every Monday and Thursday, blog post on Wednesdays. Uh, but yeah, we just, we just uh, as two friends, wanted to start a podcast that would, uh, one, just encourage others, but also challenge each other. So we're, uh, we're quite thankful for it. I have I'm also married. I'm my wife. Uh, I got a wife. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, please go for kids. it. I love her. She's she's my foundation. Uh, everything. I I rescued her from Canada, socialist Canada, uh, <laughs> Port Alberni, British Columbia, and I gave her freedom and a green card. Wow! Wow! <laughs> you are lucky, Michelle, as she's listening and throwing my stuff out of the house. <laughs> That's awesome. I have in my here in my notes that uh, Jimmy, aka Fofo, is there a story there? Yeah. So uh, as as you know. People do. They have little nicknames for each other. And so uh, I call, you know, I have the Jojo, which is Joe Thorne, and I'm Fofo. Obviously. Uh, my last name's Fowler. And together we're the Jofo. And uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I refer to myself as like I'm the Batman to his, you know, Robin. Sure. Uh, I am the podcast husband. He's the podcast wife. It's, it's just <laughs> it's just how we roll together. Jofo. It's, right, like so a, it's like a Brangelina, but better. Obviously, yes. well, what could be better? I uh, I got a couple of questions. We're going to ask you about probably cigars and whiskey a little bit later, Ooh, and then definitely the podcast. But I want to be sure to ask you about uh, your role at the church, because I feel like executive pastors right now seem to be the most stressed out in yeah. trying oh, to man. navigate. What do, what do we do in this crisis? Like, How have you guys been handling all that? 
Yeah, it's only been by the grace of God. And, and, and you know, I appreciate uh, the mentality that maybe the executive pastors are really struggling with this. I think pastors as a whole are really yeah. struggling with this because we we're kind of in this tension. Right. There's this like no win situation. You can't please everybody. Uh, whenever you talk about race, rioting, uh, gathering in the midst of covid, like everything's been so politicized within the church. We've taken the America mentality and brought it right into the sanctuary. And uh, for a lot of people, it's just it's a divided issue. And so uh, it's not just executive pastors, but I think here's who I feel horrible for. Right. As frustrated as I am as an executive pastor, I feel horrible for those uh, smaller churches where it's only a single pastor with a limited elder board or just all they have is deacons. Right. Right. And, And they're trying to navigate these waters on their own on how. Do we care and shepherd for our people yet and, 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 you know, follow the Lord's command to gather together, to not neglect the assembly while at the same time, right, uh, safety for our congregation. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, for us, we've been we've been very cautious, very careful. We've uh, we, we have a lot of measures in place when it comes to sanitation and, uh, you know, services are kind of by registration and uh, everyone's kind of far apart and. Uh, you do. You just do everything you can. Masks are are you know required at one, recommend at the other. All our volunteers are wearing masks, and you just mm. do the best you can. Yeah. Uh, and and hope that uh, you know you just trust the Lord with it, right? Absolutely. But Absolutely. even then, no matter what, you got people like I, I'm dealing. You know, I deal with people from both sides on this, right? Right. Like ah, your lack of faith in the Lord shows yeah. every time you wear that mask. Yep. Right. Yeah. Or for others, like how how are you going to endanger us like this and and meet together? You know. Mm. And I'm like, come on, man, give me the benefit of the doubt here. You know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. Jimmy, I'm curious if you think, uh, is COVID, uh, how is it changing the church? Is it hurting the church? What, what do you think the church is going to be like, when, whatever it looks like to get out of this in who knows how long? Yeah, I mean, I, I think early on, I had thought that Corona would actually unite the church uh, in the sense that as we were missing the gathering, that we would long for that gathering, right? Yeah. That we would long for fellowship, that we would long to praise together, that we long to sit under the, the teaching, right, uh, of the word, that we would long for those things. I, I do think that's true. I think part of the frustration people have is they are longing for that and they're missing that means of grace uh, that they've been asked to uh, refrain from, you know, uh, as, as, a, as a body, right? Um, but I do see division. I do see division. I mean, uh, and, and not necessarily within Redeemer, but I see it in, in you know, you see it on Twitter, of course. Um, but you see it just in, in the larger church context. Um, I, I think people are so ingrained in their thought and it, mm. it's so black and white. Right. And actually, I was uh, uh, one of the things I loved. Uh, so, Brian, I don't really know you and I know right. of Ian a bit better. But Ian <laughs> used to do this beauty in the common. Right. And you probably you still do. And used to uh, uh, I first heard of you and heard you speak at Judson University. Uh, and I was encouraged immensely by, by what I heard. Hmm. Uh, but one of the things I, I really appreciate, I think you guys' uh, show is about that, is how do you focus on that common good, right? Like, how do you focus right. on those things that unite us as, as a body of Christ? How do you focus on those things that bring us together as, as the family of God? And there's these other things that are on the, on the outside or peripheral, but we've made those things the main things, right? right? That's right. Well, let me first just say, man, thanks, thanks for that word. That's super encouraging. I appreciate your kind words. I, Brian paid know. me on that one, and John, the producer, <laughs> he right. sent me a bunch of notes. Said, be nice to Ian. He's been really struggling. 
And uh, you really got to encourage him. I said, okay, the, John. The checks in the guy. mail, Fofo. Yes, Fofo. Yes. <laughs> okay, so, so Brian and I are both pastors. And so a lot of times we come at it from the perspective of pastors. But my guess is the vast majority of our audience actually aren't pastors, but maybe are a part of a church. I'd love to know, what are some ways you think people who would consider themselves Christ followers or a part of a local body, what are the ways that they can like care for their pastors and their leaders as they navigate all this? Yeah. I mean, I think first and foremost, pray, right? Pray for those in leadership. This is not easy. Listen, even yesterday, what day today is Monday. Even yesterday I, I sat, uh, I got home from a meeting and I sat there nearly shaking. Right. Mm. And like my kids kept trying to talk to me. I'm like, Hey guys, I, I just, daddy needs a few minutes. I just need a few minutes <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I was feeling tense and anxious right mm. over. I'm thinking like, what is the right decision here? What's the right path forward as, as we're navigating through COVID, right? It, this is stressful. This is really stressful because yeah. I look at this and I go, yeah, there's a part of me that's like, man, things are overblown, but there's the other part of me that's like, yeah, okay, 99% survival rate. But what about that 1%? Yeah, right, right. Like, does, does that then mean I, I, I just forget about them? Trump early on, you know, had said one death is too many. And now all of a sudden 1% uh, uh, acceptable to... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. to our, our church leaders, right? Like it, it, they're not saying it that way, but the idea of like, this is all overblown, just get back together. It's 99% survival rate. Just, it's like, well, you forgot though, this is the tension that we hold, right? Mm. And so pray for us. Cause this is not easy. This is not, this is like when I signed up, you know, you're thinking, shoot, I'm just going to go ahead and preach the word of God and get some programs <laughs> going guys. Hurrah. Yeah. Like I was expecting everyone to drop off cookies. You know, where are my cookies? <laughs> where are my cookies? Where are my cookies? But, yeah, but pray, pray for and support them, right? Actively support them in the, in the sense of like uh, uh, maybe encouraging words. You know, mm. let them know, hey, Pastor, I'm praying for you. Like, I know this is not easy, but I want you to know I, 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 I trust that the Lord is with you, that he is leading you, that he is guiding you. Mm. Uh, thank you for your ministry here. Thank you for your faithfulness to endure during this. How can I, how can I pray for, how can I support mm-hmm. you and your, your spouse? Can I, can I help watch the kids or anything while, while you guys have just a moment alone? Like what, what is there something I could do to kind of right. support you in this during this time? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I would also say, give them grace, give them the benefit of the doubt because despite your, like how you feel about something, there's somebody else that's angry with your pastor about the other side of it. That's right. Mm-hmm. Right. And like the notion that like, I, I've heard some people like, Say, oh, leftist this or leftist that. I'm like, what are you talking about, leftist? I ain't no leftist. I'm, I'm pretty conservative, right? right. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not far right crazy. You know, I'm not conservative <laughs> and nutty. But you know, I look and I say, give, give me grace that I'm actually trying to navigate these waters safely. You know, I was talking with a friend of mine. I'm like, you know, I was like, dude, I'm like, if you if you were advising me, you'd be telling me to mitigate my risk. You'd be telling me to kind of make sure I was, you know, taking things cautiously. And yet here you are giving me slack over something. That I'm trying to do in that way. I mean, take a look at our, our two brothers, right? Take a look at MacArthur and Dever, two mm, yeah. brothers on different sides of the country, different right. sides of the coin, trying to navigate this. Listen, I don't agree with John or with Mark all the time, but I do know this, that they love the Lord. They love their people and they're trying to navigate these in a safe mm. and, and cautious and God honoring way. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that other voice you hear is Jimmy Fowler. He is the executive pastor at Redeemer Fellowship Church in St. Charles, and we are thrilled that Jimmy's going to join us for another segment here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.
Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us. We're grateful to be joined for a second segment by Jimmy Fowler. Again, he is the executive pastor at Redeemer Fellowship Church uh, in St. Charles, Illinois. Also the co-host, along with his friend and fellow pastor. Probably Jimmy main host. host. I think you should probably say main host, Brian. <laughs> main host. Can we do that, Brian? Yeah, Batman. He's Batman. I'm Batman. Yes, let's all uh, make sure I'm Batman. <laughs> Jimmy is the driver of Doctrine and Devotion. Joe Thorne helps him out on the side. Time to time, he's involved. His sidekick, I think is what he calls him. Exactly. That's it. You can find them at doctrineanddevotion.com. Jimmy, before uh, the break, we were talking about COVID and pastoring mm. and just how different the church is. I'm wondering how you are looking to navigate and maybe some advice you'd give to pastors as we head into an election season. Speaking of things that divide, right, politics, uh, what's kind of your uh, game plan as we head towards this election? Yeah, I mean, um, one of the things I think, well, we've been criticized for from time to time. Uh, has been from the pulpit, we're not really one to endorse, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're not sitting up there, uh, you know, at like Falwell Jr., like Jerry Jr. <laughs> one, our pants are buttoned. Oh, uh, right. that's, that's hey, <laughs> but uh, we don't see ourselves getting involved in that way because as we look at like at, there's a Redeemer, it's a pretty even split, right? We got we got Democrats, we got Republicans, we got independents, mm-hmm. and everyone gets along pretty well. And so we don't we don't avoid that because um, we don't avoid politics because we're afraid to do it. We avoid it because uh, all of them are corrupt, right? Hmm. All of them are uh, are depraved, right? All of them uh, need God's grace. And so for us, though, what we want to focus on, we're talking about politics, is we want to give our people the tools to interpret the culture around them. So as they are sitting under the teaching, as they're part of community groups, as they're uh, praising and worshiping God, and as they're being sanctified and edified, they have now the tools, especially the word of God, to to sit there and hear what's being, I mean, sold to them, right? Mm-hmm. People are selling themselves for your vote. And so the question is whether or not you are going to buy that or not. And so as you are, as as you're discerning that, that's where like the scripture is really important. It's, it's really crucial to me. Go ahead. Sorry, Brian. Now, I want to ask a couple of questions later about the podcast, and I, I'm going to get to this cigar conversation, I promise mm. you. But I, one of the things you mentioned earlier that I find so fascinating, so you have people left, right, and center that are all a part yeah. of your church family. You, you all call that place home, even though you, all, you have many disagreements. What do you think are some of the hallmarks of a community that can actually do that successfully? It's a lot of our heartbeat behind the word common, even on this show, is that how, how can we find some common space, even though we may vote differently, we may disagree on this point of doctrine? Like, how do you cultivate a space like that? So I think part of it has been uh, for the mission of Redeemer is, is for us, we believe the mission of the church is to go and make disciples as disciples. Hmm. And so with that, then, um, sometimes you see churches, that, that, that to me is our focus. Our focus, the goal of the church is to make disciples as disciples. Now, that might be played out in certain ways, but for some of the churches, the focus becomes uh, social justice, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the mission of the church then becomes uh, if combating against racism or the mission of the church becomes uh, integrating, you know, the, the American flag on stage right? mm. uh, and grading, you know, bringing the two together, American culture with, with the church. And now you have one uh, new uh, religion. Um, but I think 
So for us, what we've done is focused on these. This is the main thing is to mm-hmm. go and make disciples as disciples. And so when we focus on that together and we say that is for us uh, a non-negotiable, how do we do that together? Uh, I think it then gives way to saying, OK, we want to focus on what it means to uh, read scripture, right? What it means to worship God, what it means to pray together. And and we really focus a lot on community groups, uh, what other people would call like Bible studies or home groups. Uh, and there we really focus on relational building with each other. Uh, and it's, I think it's pretty hard to be upset with someone. Um, and I mean, you can be upset, but it's hard to hold that against them when you know that they're praying for you and that they love you because you built this relationship with them. Uh, and so we've had people talk about politics and, you know, uh, I think of a couple of guys that, you know, one's like, you oh, know, I voted for Trump and the other one's I voted for Hillary. And they go, you really voted for him or her? And like, they were astounded with each other, but they were able to still love each other and care for each other in the midst of that difference. Right. And so we, we focus a lot on uh, the essentials and everything else is on the wayside. And we say, this is non-negotiable for us. Before Ian jumps in and he's, he's ready to ask you about cigars, just tell us a little bit about the podcast. People might be listening to you going, hey, uh, I really like what he's got to say. Tell us a little bit about Doctrine and Devotion. Yeah. Uh, so Joe Thorne and I started that back in uh, 2016. I don't know. Something like that. We've been going for a few years. Uh, and it was really born out of what Joe and I would do is we'd meet at the cigar shop uh, every week and we would just talk. We would just whatever topic we, you know, would come to mind, or we would kind of text each other ahead of time and say, Hey, let's talk about this, you know? And we'd gather together and we would just talk and people would listen in just mm. from the cigar shop. And uh, people were laughing, they're joking around with us. And, and Joe and I, uh, we take scripture serious. We take the Lord seriously, right? We take uh, the glory of God seriously. We don't take ourselves too seriously. <laughs> and so we, we just were having a lot of fun and, and people kept telling us, Hey, you guys should, maybe look at recording that and, and sharing that. Cause I think it'd be beneficial for others. And we're like, nah, no, nah, we're, we're, we're just idiots. You know, it's like, no one wants to hear from us. No one cares about what we have to say. But uh, over time we just said, yeah, you know what? Maybe this would be encouraging for others, especially as we looked at our culture and saw everything being so divisive, right? Yeah. Everyone kind of going at each other. It's like, well, how do we have a podcast where we could try to be encouraging uh, that we could still be bold Right. But like if we're going to if we're going to, quote unquote, pick someone apart, I'm going to pick someone apart from my own camp. You know, we're Southern Baptists. And so we, we're going to pick apart our Southern Baptist brethren because that's the camp we're from. It's easy for me to go and say, you know, I'm going to go. I don't know. I'm trying to think of another uh, like a, for charismatics. Anglican. Right? Anglican. It's easy for me to go ahead and go and sit there and try to judge and pick them apart. But I need to be focusing on my own camp in this. Right. And, and so part of that podcast was like, I think this would be good for our community of, of, uh, and our networks uh, to see how do you wrestle through these things in a, in a way that's God-honoring and encouraging and just even graceful with each other. Yeah. A couple of things I appreciate about that. One, I've listened to a bunch of that podcast, and it's, it's just so clear to me that you guys aren't in it to like push your brand, your name. Like It feels like everyone has a podcast right now, and they're just – I need to say something and I need to be like, I, I love the story, the origin story of like people asked us like, Hey, could you just hit record on that? I think that's really interesting. <laughs> and also to say it out loud, I, I'm super grateful for you and Joe and your church and the ways that you guys are loving people and loving our city. I think it's, I think it's remarkable. Okay. I did promise this though, with the minute we have remaining, mm-hmm. I'd love for you to make a theological case 
for smoking cigars? Yeah, uh, do all things to the glory of God. Uh, oh, here there was smoke in the assembly. Hey, oh. <laughs> this this incense in the assembly. I'm just bringing about incense, guys. If, they, if my Roman Catholic brethren could do it, so can I. It's beautiful. It's poetry. It's poetry. <laughs> that is well done. Again, that's Jimmy Fowler. He's the executive pastor at Redeemer Fellowship Church in St. Charles, Illinois. Uh, you can also hear him on the Doctrine and Devotion podcast. Wherever you get your podcast, you can go to doctrineanddevotion.com. Uh, Jimmy, this was really fun. We'll have to do it again. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Hope you're having a good Monday here as some crazy storms blow through the area. Hope you're safe. Uh, but we are glad that you are joining us. Well, over at a blog called uh, Salt and Light, Mandy Smith, who has been on our show before, uh, she wrote an interesting post called The Power of Holy Mischief in Times of Crisis. Ian, why don't you tell us a little bit about what Mandy wrote here? Yeah, so Mandy, just to say it out loud, is an incredible thinker and writer and pastor and uh, does a lot of writing over at Missio Alliance, a website and a resource that we've referenced a lot. But this is over at saltandlight.sg. And uh, let me just read a little bit and uh, I'll stop whenever it feels appropriate. So she wrote this, it was posted August 1. She said, last week was pretty dark for me. I believe God can make all things new, but I'm not seeing it. When I look at the news, I just see death rates. When I look at the economy, I see plummeting figures. When I look at my calendar, I see canceled plans. When I talk to others, they're also tired, grieving, overwhelmed, ready for something different. And I would raise my hand in that mix as well, by the way. Yep. Colossians 1 calls us to, quote, endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father. That's Colossians 1.11. I don't know about you, but to me, that seems like a lot to ask right now. But Christian endurance doesn't it mean pretending everything's okay and soldiering on? In Colossians, Paul also reminds us of the hope stored up for us in heaven. This is not just wishful thinking kind of hope or hope that we only see in some vague distant future. As Christian poet, oh gosh, Padre Otuama puts it, the answer's in a story and the story isn't finished. Certainly, if our story ended now, it would be a tragedy. We're still living in isolation. Our gatherings are still canceled. The future shape of our lives is still in question, but our story isn't finished. We have to remember that this hope Paul gushes about in Colossians is a hope he's expect he's experiencing in a Roman prison cell. His crisis has not yet been resolved, and yet even in it, he rejoices. Why? How? Thankfully, Paul goes on to unpack his hope. We have hope because we are we are already rescued from the power of darkness and have already been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Hope is where we live. We can have hope because Jesus is over and above. All powers, visible and invisible. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hope is a person who is not afraid of or surprised by our current crisis. I'll stop right there. That in and of itself could be a sermon, right? Oh, we preach. That's the first thing I thought of. I'm like, that preaches. Uh, because she's so correct. We when we when we look at the epistles, right, with Paul, we we it adds such a depth to it when we remember, right, when he's writing Philippians, most scholars believe he's in a jail cell, unsure of what's coming next. And yet he over and over is like, rejoice, rejoice, be joyful. And you're like, okay, uh, his joy was not tied to his circumstances. And and that becomes 
such an important truth. And she's so right here about where we can find hope apart from our circumstances, because there's a lot of our circumstances right now that are ripe for despair and ripe, rightfully so ripe for discouragement. And she's trying to very uh, skillfully here uh, try to point us in a different direction. Yeah, I think of Soren Kierkegaard who said something like, by God's grace, with God's help, I shall become myself. This mm-hmm. idea that Paul later in Colossians, you know, is telling them really to be who they are, which, you know, to our kind of modern language sounds very confusing. Like, what do you mean be who I am? I am who I am. But I think as with hope, often the encouragement Paul's offering is, you know, there's this reality that you're not yet fully living into, like, because it's the already not yet of the kingdom that I think is That's often right. so difficult for us to to realize or to live into in the day-to-day because like she says at the beginning everything feels like it's crashing in on me you know like paul's letter to the church in philippi is all about joy he's writing that from prison too how can you write an entire letter about joy when you're chained either to a wall or a soldier well then his joy must not be rooted ultimately in his circumstances that doesn't mean that he's impenetrable like paul also writes he essentially says things like i'm not sure if i even want to live or die right Mm -hmm. like to the church in rome he says I do what I hate doing and I don't do what I want to do. You're like, okay, so this guy's human too, but <laughs> is able to have this perspective in the midst of chaos, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of grief that I feel like, again, he wasn't you know, living through a global pandemic, but I, I love the rest of it. I wish we had time to get into the rest of it because it's, it's really, really well written. Yeah. Let me ask you this question. Pastorally, um, man, this is the most, uh, if someone came to you and said, uh, okay, pastor, I get this. Like I get Paul, I get all this but I'm still struggling. How do I live into this? How do I do this? What would you tell somebody who's asking, like, I really don't know how to live with this sort of perspective? You know, I I think it's already, it's putting the cart before the horse. Often I think we want to jump right to how do I live this out? We're a very utilitarian uh, application obsessed people, which Mm -hmm. isn't wrong. I think it's led to all sorts of incredible movements and church growth and evangelistic efforts and all of that. But it, it's first, I think, a reality that we rest in. Like if we're if we jump right to what do I do in order to feel more loving or feel more hopeful or feel more at peace? You know, Paul in Colossians three talks about ridding ourselves of one thing or a list of things and then clothing ourselves in the others. Clothing yourself in compassion and kindness and patience means sometimes I'm putting it on even if I don't feel it. Like it's choosing to recognize, man, I'm not powerful, but I'm empowered. Like it's not mm-hmm. about me mustering it all together. It's about resting in, oh, my identity isn't found in what I accomplish or what people say about me. It's in who God says about me. What God has to say about me is the most important thing about me. And I think the more that we can like live into that, like let that permeate every aspect of our lives, we're still going to have tough days. In fact, Jesus even says, you're going to have tough days because of me, Not, not just in general. He says the world in some cases will hate you because of me. But take heart. I've overcome the world. I've conquered it. Like there's nothing that the world or sin or darkness can throw against you that even competes. And I think the more that we like live into that, not just as a intellectual ascent, but as something that is is forming us. It's a formation question. Uh, I think that slowly over time, like a muscle that grows begins to be more and more our posture. It's not just a switch that we flip. It's not a it's not a a curriculum or something we download into our brain. I think it's, it's a way of let's, it's why the first Christians were called followers of the way, you know, mm-hmm. it required like movement and activity. It wasn't just about intellectual ascent as good as that is. It's incomplete. I think uh, something you touched on there that 
people, myself included, we think that there's like this magic bullet, right? Like if I could yeah. just read the right book or do this. And, and oftentimes the answer that I find in my own life is daily needing to remind myself, like you said, well, what is my identity in Christ? How does God see me? And just remind myself and, um, you know, remind my, and, and to take the discipline of spending time in prayer every day and to do things that, that just allow me uh, to focus on this good news, as opposed to, like you said, hey, here's the three steps to living contentedness or to not being in despair, hmm. um, I think is good. She says here, too. So in the middle of despair last week, I found myself watching videos of flash mobs. We love those transcendent moments when we feel part of something bigger than ourselves, like getting wrapped up in an impromptu dance scene in an old musical where somehow everyone knows the steps, this hmm. kind of holy mischief, as she said, doing the things that also bring joy in the midst of the despair. And I do think, closing this out, it's important to acknowledge we are in a season right now that rightfully causes despair. <laughs> like, yeah, right. uh, don't feel guilty for that. Right. But the question is also, what do we do with that in the midst of our despair? And part of it is, as Ian said, to remind ourselves of these truths that Mandy Smith wrote here, I think is really helpful. I would encourage you to read this whole article. It's yeah. up at our Facebook page the common good radio show you'll be blessed uh as you read this it's a really good word well uh the first hours in the books when we come back we're going to talk a little bit about john MacArthur, something he said from the pulpit this past sunday that's coming up next year on the common good am 1160 coming up this hour we're going to talk john MacArthur, a little more Jerry Falwell, and then an interesting survey about American Christianity. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm, and we're going to do a little, we're going to let you in a little bit on how this show works uh, Ian, you and I are both at our respective houses right now. We have been since the middle of March, uh, but mm-hmm. we also uh, are recorded earlier. And so right now uh, we're going to go a little time space continuum here. Uh, we are recording during uh, this storm is just going crazy right now. I haven't seen anything like this in a long time, man. I don't think that's how space time continuum works, but I like it. I, I see what I, I know. <laughs> I believe that you like it. <laughs> Yeah, it is pretty wild. We're also our house is like roughly twelve feet from like the siren in our city, so that created an extra level of terror for my boys. I'm like running and trying to throw stuff in the garage, and then realizing how messy my garage is. I'm just throwing stuff on top of stuff, trying to <laughs> frantically get everything indoors before before all the chaos. So uh, yeah, never a dull moment, that's for sure. It is crazy how quickly it turned because before it was. You know, kind of, kind of, we're looking at the radar like, I don't know, that looks kind of dicey. And now this is like, it's been a long time since I've seen a storm like this. So hopefully everybody's out there being safe. It's a big storm and, uh, and it's coming through and hopefully everybody's safe. But I'm in my basement. Let me paint a picture. You said you're in a basement with your family. I'm in a basement with my youngest daughter and our two dogs. If you hear some barking, it's, it's one of the dogs, not the daughter. Uh, but my wife and kids are still making their way home through this from somewhere. So. Uh, yeah, a little distracted, but hey, in a little basement time. I, th- I think this will be good. So do you have all the you got the kids and everybody in your basement right now? We got the kids and the wife and the mother-in-law. They're all just outside my door. 
How about my daughter and your mother-in-law does the show? How's that sound? (laughs) I think everyone would appreciate that. Exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, again, hopefully everybody is safe, but this looks like it would be one of those storms that we, uh, that we remember. And so hard right turn, something that has been going, uh, a lot of people in the evangelical world, especially, but even beyond the evangelical world, just in the political world and just our nation have been talking about is John MacArthur. Uh, and the stance that he has taken. So let me remind people, John MacArthur, uh, pastor of a really big church called Grace Community Church out in the, I believe, the Los Angeles area. Uh, John MacArthur, he basically a couple weeks ago said, I'm going to defy the government. We are going to begin meeting, but not just meeting. If you've seen pictures of his church, it's like 3,000 people jammed in, barely a mask to be seen. And uh, now the the L.A. count, the L.A. mayor has threatened to fine and turn off the electricity for churches and other organizations that are defying the order. Uh, and so and co- possible arrests. And MacArthur keeps doubling down. And so uh, I want you to hear before Ian getting your take on this, I want you to hear uh, how John MacArthur uh, welcomed his church this week. Listen to this. Good morning, everyone. I'm so happy to welcome you to the uh, Grace Community Church Peaceful Protest. So when I saw this one going around, it was interesting because uh, not just what he said going, oh, well, hey, if we were a protest, we're fine. But by the raucous um, uh, applause that just kept going. I don't know if you had heard that yet, Ian, but what are your thoughts upon hearing that? Ah, man, Brian, I'm trying to be real fair. Okay. I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think of like another circumstance where you, you would feel good about maybe the congregation's response. Like, can you think of a, an opportunity in our lifetime where the church stood in opposition and the pastor got up and like you would feel good about like, yeah, that's right. We're, we're totally sticking to the man. Like, is there another maybe not even an instance? Is there yeah. a, another topic that you would feel good about that happening? It's a great question because I don't know where that would be, you know, something around abortion or something. But I don't know where it would require this sort of stance to be taken. Uh, and so, no, I don't I don't know. And, and I'm. I'm wondering, and I know we keep having this talk each week, and we've got two articles up on our Facebook page, one from Religion News. It says, uh, John MacArthur believes the Bible trumps COVID-19 restrictions, but constitutional law experts uh, say otherwise. Uh, and then you print, you came up with one call, uh, at a uh, specific website uh, that says, Christ and Caesar, a response to John MacArthur. And so you could take either of those or, or just tell me, where do you continue to be at with not just his, hey, you know, I think it's important for us to be open, uh, but his strong stand. He's really trying to preach to other churches, too, saying uh, we this is the right thing to be doing. I'm wondering, uh, as he keeps doubling down, what you think about that? Uh, so you gave me about four options there. Let me think. <laughs> Take whichever gonna, one you want. <laughs> I'm going to read from this. uh the Devenant Institute. I think the response, again, we don't have time to get to all of this, but I'll just read how it kind of starts. Uh, the past few months have not been kind to America, America or the American church. The coronavirus crisis, it has several times been observed, is surely a divine judgment, not necessarily a divine punishment, although God knows we have sins plenty. But a test that lays reality bare, that separates wheat from chaff, that throws into sharp relief the ugly fault lines at the heart of our politics and churchmanship. 
And surely one thing this judgment has revealed is the astounding lack of judgment that characterizes so many of our leaders, the astounding absence of wisdom and prudence from our councils. While it's fashionable to point the finger at the failures of judgment in politics and media, the church has acquitted itself a little better. Back in March, many hoped that the pandemic would provide a rare opportunity for the church to powerfully witness to the watching world, to show what it means to live in freedom from fear, to sacrifice self or neighbor, to pool resources to care for the needy and unemployed, to walk patiently and steadfastly in light of eternity, rather than being tossed to and fro by every gust of the cultural movement, uh, cultural moment. Many churches seized the opportunity to show the love and humility of Christ in the dark time. Many chose a different path. And he goes on to kind of unpack a little bit of... Uh, MacArthur's choice there with his church, he says, note that I am not challenging or not yet at any rate their conclusions. I leave open for now the question of whether their determination to resume indoor services is right. I will return to this question toward the end. In times of trial and crisis, however, we are particularly apt to reason in reverse, to begin with a desired conclusion and then construct an argument that will yield it. But the false principles adopted in the process will remain long after the present crisis, continuing to rot away at our teaching and witness. This is truer still if we find ourselves in positions of leadership and prominence, as John MacArthur does. So that's probably enough to kind of at least whet your appetite. Gosh, I wish we had more time to get into this because I think it's really interesting. I think, uh, you know, I asked you a little earlier, is there another circumstance where you feel like we would be applauding? Uh, from the congregation, I would imagine if like the government just outright made it illegal to, for no reason, like no nope, right. churches can't meet. I can see that being a bit of a rally call. Like, no, we will we will serve God rather than man. Yes. Part of what I find so complicated about this issue, and you know, as Jimmy Fowler was saying earlier in the show, he's like, man, whether we agree with leaders or not, I got to give them the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. that they love God and they love their flock, they love their people. Uh, from my particular vantage point, it feels unnecessarily risky at best to to not even explore the options of outdoor services or to require masks. There's so many other things that they could have done for me. It seems like it's crossed from, uh, no, we're not going to allow the government to dictate what we do into borderline half hazard flippancy. And that's kind of where I, I, I find some of, some of the rub. And interestingly, I was reading an article this weekend, uh, about the differences. Greg Laurie is in the same County, uh, and Greg Laurie's gone about it very differently. Outdoor services, socially right. distanced masks. Right. Uh, and so I'm with you on that. Like, I think like, like Jimmy Fowler said, like, we've got to show grace and we're all trying to make it. I'm uncomfortable. Let's just put it this way. And, you know, there is a large segment of evangelicalism that disagree with you and I, if my Facebook feed is any indication. Sure, uh, yeah. But I'm uncomfortable with like the brazenness and the. Uh, not just, hey, I believe this is right, but I believe that we need to fight this battle and bring others with us uh, to the point that MacArthur even called churches that are that are not doing what he's doing. He questioned whether they're real churches. Right. Uh, and so I think that's like you where I get uncomfortable because, again, some churches are meeting. Some churches are meeting with certain guidelines. Others are not. I get that there's wiggle room in there for the discussion, uh, but this one seems to be. Uh, I'm going to be kind of the one out front to take the arrows. And I'm just not sure that the midst of a pandemic is the time to say I'm going to fight for this sort of freedom. But I know a lot of people out there disagree. In fact, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common Good uh, Radio Show. And we'd love to hear your feedback. Well, coming up next, uh, Jerry Falwell. After after our show on Friday, some more things changed with him. And we're going to discuss that next year on the Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on a dark, stormy, crazy Monday. 
And uh, as we admitted in the last segment, Ian and I were taping the show a little earlier than when it airs. And right now we're in the midst of the storm. My wife was just telling me there were some trees already up just a couple blocks from us. And uh, I don't know, this is always kind of scary, but hopefully everybody out there uh, in in the listening world is doing well. And uh, we are glad that you're joining us for a little bit. Uh, well, after our show on Friday, we discussed on Friday Jerry Falwell Jr. and all that was happening and uh, specifically the photos that he quickly took down from Instagram that were just weird from a yacht on a vacation, uh, pregnant woman. Uh, Falwell's taking a picture with her with his pants unbuttoned, looking like he's holding alcohol, although he said it wasn't, but just really seedy. And it's kind of in the long line of things that have happened with Jerry Falwell Jr. And you and I weighed in on Friday with what we thought should happen. Well, after our show on Friday, uh, things took another turn with the university's board of trustees. Why don't you catch us up a little bit on what happened down at Liberty? Yeah. In summary, uh, he gone. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> oh yeah. He's, I guess, uh, indefinite leave of absence, which that's right. is that's a good point. That's different than being fired, which we can maybe talk about that at another time. I thought that was actually strange. That's a strange choice. Yes, definite leave of absence. I'll read a little bit from uh, Kate Shelnut, who we've had on the show before. Mm-hmm. They posted on August 7th at 4 a.m. Jerry Falwell Jr. has agreed to take an indefinite leave of absence from Liberty University, the evangelical school he has led since 2007 as president and chancellor. The executive committee of Liberty's board of trustees, of which Falwell is a member, met today and made the decision according to a statement posted on the university site. The leave is effective immediately. The announcement did not indicate the reason for Falwell's leave in a follow-up statement. Board Chair Jerry Prevo cited the, quote, substantial pressure on Falwell's leadership, as well as the, quote, concerns of everyone in the LU community. This week, a wave of Liberty alumni and supporters spoke out against Falwell after a recent photo circulated of him posing with a woman at a party with their zippers down and midsections exposed. The critics included a U.S. Republican congressman and executive board member of the state Southern Baptist Convention, SBC, and several evangelical pastors. Multiple members of the Liberty community told CT. They had been hopeful the criticism would shift the university's response to the latest controversy and were encouraged by the board's response. I'll stop there. That's a fair summary. I think we're going to take a deeper dive into some of the reasons, which I find it interesting. I saw a bunch of people posting like, really, this is the thing of of all the like cited reasons over the last 13 years. This this is the thing that finally pushed the leadership over, which we could talk about that at length as well, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, it's certainly a strange turn of events especially since like the original photo was like posted and deleted real quickly. And right. I don't know, there's probably eight or nine different directions we could go with this one, but there's another article we, we had on the rundown. I don't know if you want to talk about that I more do. specifically or what, what, what were some of your responses to the news? You know, from when we talked on Friday, you and I both felt very strongly that, he, that he is, uh, that he needed to be removed. And like you said, it's very interesting that it's an indefinite le- an indefinite uh, leave of absence because a lot of people go, They're just waiting this out and they're going to bring him back. Other people are like, no, this is the beginning of a firing process. We shall see. Um, But this other article at The Bulwark, uh, that's what will be up on our Facebook page. They said it this way. Let's be clear. The problem with Jerry Falwell Jr. isn't that he occasionally makes clownishly inept crude posts on social media. It's bigger than that. Falwell's zipper has been down for years. I thought that was a good, uh, a funny line. Uh, And then they list some of them. The Liberty community has always looked at Falwell and seen things that made us uncomfortable. He's always shown us too much. For instance, he has explicitly said that he takes no responsibility for the spiritual growth of Liberty students, even though the school is a Christian university. 
As a loyal supporter of Donald Trump, Falwell has openly said that his political activities are not influenced at all by his faith. He called a liberty parent a dummy. He told one well-known evangelical pastor to grow a pair. He chided another to be un- of, for being unqualified to speak on any subject. Falwell even told liberty students to, quote, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, then threw his support behind a bizarre plan in the Virginia counties to secede from the state and join West Virginia. But then the other part, it says Falwell's defenders regularly say, but he's been really good for the school, enrollment up, money up, everything up. And so the question becomes, uh, why do you think that this was the one? Was it just that this was finally the one that tipped the scales? Or was it because it was on social media? Why do you think this finally went that way? Because quite frankly, uh, over the years, if you just go by enrollments and money and building, he has been good for the school. Okay. See, I knew you were going to do this. Uh, I think one of the reasons, to be honest, is that it's sexual in nature. Mm-hmm. And conservative Christianity has long since had a riddled history and past with sexual sin specifically. So I think, and again, it's past is, is, legitimately pretty awful in some way and not again that's not the vast majority at all but we do need to talk honestly about like man well there's there's some real blemishes on the reputation of conservative and progressive christianity in that regard but like you were reading you know these lists of uh, accusations a lot of them are like well is that a fireable offense for telling a pastor to grow a pair like (laughs) it's certainly not conduct expected of a university president certainly not a christian university and certainly not a university that holds its students to a notoriously strict standard of conduct. That's, that's some of the, the yes. hypocrisy. I mean, I've been reading a lot of different accounts from other former Liberty students who have shared uh, what like their reprimand circumstances were like and being brought before, you know, the, the leaders of the school and being told that you've tainted the name of Christ and the school for X, Y, Z. Like yeah. to me, it's like some of the inconsistencies is part of what people found. So, so baffling, I think. And, and, you know, we've mentioned before on the show, even some of the flippancy with which he like tweets and posts and responds and excuses himself. Uh, to me, again, I think of like the university presence that I know and love and respect. I can't even apart from like an alien abduction, I can, I can't even <laughs> imagine, I can't even conceive of them behaving this way. Right. Not even just private, not privately, let, let alone posting publicly. And that to me is uh, that's been the shocking disconnect. Yeah. And I think two things come out of this. Uh, One is uh, if you want to be cynical, uh, he has begun to become a weight around the school more than before he was a benefit. I'm reading in this article, freshman applications to Liberty have dropped by a whopping 60%. Transfer applications have dropped by 30%. I think his effect is starting to have an effect, whereas maybe before it didn't. But two, I think there's a lesson here for some grassroots like, uh, no, we're, we're fed up with this. A lot of this picture, like you said, it was deleted right away. It could have gone away, but it was not only reporters who picked it up, but it was staff at Liberty. But it was more than that. It was students, like you said, going, hey, if we did this, this would what happened. And people just wouldn't let it go. And yeah. then it kind of caught steam. And so I do think there's a lesson here uh, for the power, if you will, of people in an organization who might not feel like they've got power. Like if people rally together, I think there's a story here about the power of students, the power of faculty, even when Falwell himself probably thought, to use another term, he was probably too big to fail. Yeah, I think you're right. I like how he ends this article here. Um, To my fellow members of the Liberty community, if anyone tries to downplay this latest incident to you, and they will, take my word for it, 
You should gently remind them that Falwell's recent public indecency isn't just a one-off, but a part of a long pattern. According to Falwell, his Instagram post was embarrassing to the young woman he was pictured with, but not to Falwell himself. And why would he be embarrassed? After all, Falwell's zipper has been down for a long time, and we've seen everything, and it's too disturbing to stay quiet. So this guy has a very particular perspective. Right. Again, as always, we'd love to know what you guys think. Like, where, where, where are Brian and I not seeing fully the picture, or yep. is there some latent hypocrisy in some of the outcry? We'd love to know what you think, and that's been posted over on our Facebook page. Yep. Coming up next, we're going to talk about a survey uh, um, at the Gospel Coalition that claims this. Majority of American Christians don't believe the gospel. We're going to read that and reflect upon it next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Hope you're staying safe on this stormy, stormy afternoon. We hope you're doing well. Uh, there was a survey that Joe Carter talked about here at the Gospel Coalition. It says this, majority of American Christians don't believe the gospel. So I'm going to read this, and it's a lot of numbers. So I kind of enjoy surveys, uh, but a lot of numbers. And then, Ian, you can you respond to whichever number stands out to you. How's that sound? Sounds like a blast. <laughs> Statistics class, people. Here we go. (laughs) Joe Carter says this. uh, A new survey finds that a majority of people who describe themselves as Christians accept a, quote, works-oriented means to God's acceptance. Uh, He says this. A survey conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University finds that American adults today increasingly adopt a salvation-can-be-earned perspective. A plurality of adults, 48%, believe that if a person is generally good or does enough good things during their life, they will, quote, earn a place in heaven. Only one third of adults, 35 percent, disagree. A majority of Americans who describe themselves as Christian, 52 percent, also accept a works-oriented means to God's acceptance, even those associated with churches whose official doctrine says eternal salvation comes only from embracing Jesus Christ as Savior. Almost half of all adults associated with Pentecostal, 46 percent, Mainline Protestant, 44%, and Evangelical, 41% churches, uh, as well as nearly two-thirds of Catholics, 70%, hold that view. While about 65% of American adults describe themselves as Christians, only about half, 54%, believe they will experience heaven after they die. Only one-third of adults believe they will go to heaven solely because of confessing their sins and embracing Jesus as their Savior Another one in five expecting to experience heaven are counting on earning their way in or because they embrace universalism, which means that God will let all people in. Among those with other views, 15% said they don't know what will happen after they die. 13% said there's no life after death. And uh, 8% with, went with uh, reincarnation and some others. Uh, and then it goes into age groups. So before he gets into, Joe Carter has a very... Uh, pointed of what this means. That's the next part. I'm just curious what you think about all of those numbers. Surprised, not surprised. What stands out to you? I, I don't know that I'm all that surprised. I mean, I feel like as a pastor, you get the privilege to have a lot of these conversations with people. And I find that people's perspectives don't necessarily, like I find that a lot of people will share these perspectives, whether they're brand new to faith or they've been, you know, going to church for decades. There's a lot of things I think at play there. One of it has to do with 
the particular bent or denomination of the church or yeah. their own commitment to their own spiritual growth or the particular brand of Christianity that their pastor preaches. I think that all kind of mm-hmm. contributes to it. But it does – for me, this has always been sort of like a burning passion and one that's sort of um, reinvigorated reading this article – how many people still really believe that our affection or that God's affection for us is something we can merit? That's right. I know that when we talk about the gospel, there's all sorts of different definitions about what actually is being said there. But at the very core this idea though, that like I can do enough good things in order for God to love me or notice me or accept me is pretty central to the whole thing. And that, that is, that is pretty disheartening. Yeah. And, uh, speak to the person who goes, ah, why is that such a big deal? Like, uh, like, yeah, talk to somebody who's like, no, I actually kind of believe this. Why is that a big deal? It, it creates uh, an inevitable legalism, right? You talk about right. Jesus' harshest words. His harshest criticisms were for the religious elite. They were the people that knew all the best stuff. They had the best. No, nobody could compare to them. They They had all the knowledge and were doing all the things, all the holy things, all the righteous things. And Jesus is regularly saying things like, you know what? You're living like this. It'd be better if a millstone was tied around your neck and you were thrown yeah. into the water, right? Or like you often quote the whitewashed tombs. That's not an encouraging word. He calls them brood of vipers. These are like, and that's pretty hurtful, intense language. And to think that like God's affection is based on how much I can do for him or in his name creates a very transactional kind of relationship, which will lead to either like a, a crushing legalism or a perpetual workaholism or fill in your own blank. It's, it's the same treadmill that the world offers, right? You're only as good as the things you accomplish where what I think is often missed is that when, when we trust in surrender and give our allegiance to Jesus to become an apprentice to Jesus, it doesn't mean that the work stops, but the motivation shifts. Like rather than working for God's affection, I work from it because I know that I, I have all of it freely given and there's nothing I can do to earn it. That changes the way I live. So I'm still working. I'm still, I mean, Paul even talks about working out your salvation. Like James talks about faith and works. Like those things still happen, but the motivation of my heart is totally different. Absolutely. I love that working for versus working from. Let me read about Joe Carter, how he basically then walks through the New Testament about this doctrine. And he says, this survey shows that too many Christians, in my opinion, aren't Christians at all. They are not relying on the finished work in Christ, but trusting that their own works will be judged worthy by God. There are many reasons why this belief is prevalent among self-identified Christians, but a primary cause is that they likely haven't heard the gospel. This may seem like an absurd claim since Christian leaders in America appear to be constantly talking about the gospel, but this is partially due to a self-selection bias. If you're the type of person who would visit this website to read an article about how American Christians don't believe the gospel, you probably assume most Christians are familiar with the gospel. Even in gospel-centered churches, though, we can't take for granted that the good news has been fully heard. As my friend and pastor Eric Saunders says, when you get tired of talking about a subject, uh, it is usually when your audience is just starting to pay attention to your message. This survey, he closes by saying, should be a reminder how easy it is for people to slip back into relying on themselves and how we need to constantly proclaim the gospel to ourselves and our neighbors until we fully realize that we can only be rescued from our sin through what Jesus accomplished by his life, death, and resurrection. Mm-hmm. I love that line about preaching the gospel to ourselves, because I know in my own life, sometimes I'm like, ah, I know the gospel. Now I've moved on to other things, and i got to tell other people, but no, no, we got to consistently remind ourselves uh, about the gospel. And I don't know about you, man, but for me, and you talked about this a little bit earlier, 
this does serve as motivation. Uh, I feel like this is obviously something I talk about a lot in our church, but it's motivation. Like, oh my gosh, we got to continue to just pound home this basic because this is at its core. Does that do the same for you? Uh, I would add a couple of things. You, you mentioned a couple phrases or words that I find interesting. So you talk about, I need to keep remembering the gospel. That's true, but that's incomplete though. To say we need to keep pounding this home implies if I just keep telling them enough, good point. they'll get it. It'll change their life. That isn't, that will never accomplish what we wanted to accomplish. It has to be more than just simply theological alignment or some intellectual ascent to, to live into the gospel, which is part of what I think is so tricky because I think a lot of quote gospel centered churches would know enough to say in a sermon, it's nothing we could do to earn or merit. And yet in the same sermon, we'll say, these are the seven things you now need to do. Like it gets a little slippery because we know the right kind of doctrinal thing to say. And we probably even believe it. And we don't even realize how quickly our like more utilitarian application obsessed mindset can slip in. Like, all right, now here are all the things to do. I'm obviously not anti-application. I think it's, I think we need to have that as a part of our gathering. Like, all right, how do I live? But sometimes Sometimes it's not an application. It's just a response to sit in and receive the grace and mercy and forgiveness of a God who loves you fully and completely. Like that doesn't feel mm. actionable enough for our tendencies sometimes. And so we try to like, you know, add all these other things and we'll still say that we're gospel centered, but we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But also you still have these 15 things to do. And I think sometimes we inadvertently still leave people feeling a little crushed. Absolutely. That's a good point. And uh, I would encourage people to read. This is by Joe Carter. He's an editor for the Gospel Coalition. We've got this up at our Facebook page. Lots of numbers. And then, you know, from those numbers, let's wrestle with uh, what they mean. We would love your feedback. Well, coming up next, we're going to close this show uh, with kind of a tweet thread that I saw this morning from Beth Moore. I want to talk about that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We are grateful for those of you who have listened, uh, and I guess if you're hearing this, that's one of you, you have listened. We are grateful for that you've joined us today on a stormy Monday afternoon here in the Chicagoland area, or maybe you're joining us in the future on a podcast. We're also thankful for you. So I was scrolling through Twitter this morning. Uh, Is Twitter Twitter an early morning thing for you? You get up, kind of get ready, get breakfast, playing with the kids. How early, how quickly in your day do you uh, start perusing Twitter? Uh, I try to wait as long as possible. Yeah, me too. And increasingly, I used to do it sometimes even in bed, but I'd be like waking up, kind of like, oh, it's like, no more. (laughs) No, 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 no. My my soul can't handle it, man. (laughs) Exactly. But one of what I consider one of the rays of light on Twitter is Beth Moore, uh, and I know not everybody agrees with that, but I think she is. Uh, she not only speaks a lot of truth and encouragement, but she is not afraid to point out stuff when she sees it. Uh, but Beth Moore had a bit of a tweet thread this morning that really uh, stood out to me. So I want to read it and uh, get your feedback on it. And I think it's a good way to end the show today. Just some reality of how a lot of us are feeling. So here we go. Beth Moore tweeted this morning, maybe I'm just sitting where I can't see this thing very well, but from where I'm sitting, from what I'm hearing, I don't think many people are thriving right now. God is faithful. He'll bring us through. But as he does, let's remember that nearly everyone's having a hard time. Those who annoy you are struggling. The person who constantly triggers you is struggling. That individual who insists on competing with you is struggling. Hateful people are deeply injured somewhere and presently scared half to death. Everyone's trying to cope with vulnerability. This is how the enemy of our soul works. Hmm. Uh, He 
uh, I lost my place there. He batters us when we're down, fights dirty, goes for the places we're most vulnerable. He accuses us when we're already feeling like failures, bludgeons us when we're already bruised, knows what we fear most and threatens it relently, relentlessly. Mm. Nothing could be more tragic in the community of faith or more antithetical to the gospel and more dimming to the light of our witness than Christians helping Satan harm fellow Christians. Let's have compassion on those Jesus so loves and Satan vehemently hates. Everybody hurts. That's Beth Moore on Twitter. And man, I don't know why that resonated with me so much today. I think it was just her word at the beginning where it just said, nobody's thriving right now. Everybody's struggling. I, I found that in a strange way encouragement, cause, encouraging because this whole COVID time, I don't feel like I'm thriving. I feel like I'm struggling. And yeah. so to read that, but then her charge out of that, I found both encouraging and convicting. I, I just assumed you were a big REM fan. No, <laughs> Everybody hurts. Huh? Yes. <laughs> as soon as you read it, I was like, well, that song's in my head for the rest of the day. Yes. It's, it's one of the things that, that Beth Moore does well is to remind us of the humanity because in Twitter world, probably more than even Facebook, to be honest, it's really easy for someone to simply become the sum of their positions and tweets and hashtags. Like it's, that is by nature dehumanizing. And I think when it's someone that we not just disagree with, cause I think that's easy. I think it's easy to say, yeah, we should be loving to even the people we disagree with. I think in our best days, we all would go. Yeah. What's really difficult is to be loving towards the person that insulted you or didn't assume the best of you or twisted your words or stabbed in the back. That's where, at least for me in my particular wiring, then it's, Ooh, it starts to get, I'm fine disagreeing with people like that. That, that part doesn't feel all that challenging. It's like the, Oh man, you really misrepresented me or you really came after like a sensitive part of my own story or, and she's certainly been on the receiving end of that. And again, I don't in any way presume to know what her response is like behind closed doors with the people that knows her best. But as far as her public persona, I feel like she's done a really good job of, of continuing to point us back towards, hey, let's remember that we're beloved of God. And we're like she was saying, we're all in a certain way struggling and to various degrees. You know, some people are posting selfies from their mansions or like, well, quarantine is hard. You know, like don't. <laughs> yes. Put the picture from your 40,000 square foot mansion. Like we're not struggling in the same way, but, but then again, even that, even that snarkiness for me, like, yeah, but it's, they're still experiencing relational severing and the fear of the unknown. So yeah, even in a mansion there, you know what I mean? There's still a pain there that I want to quickly say, yeah, but not, it's not as bad as mine. I'm in a basement without a window. You know what I mean? Like it's, it is, uh, it is easy to, I think, assume that people are much, they're doing much better off than they actually yeah. are because we've made it a lifestyle to present the best version of ourselves to the world at all times. So mm-hmm. why wouldn't we assume that this person is in the healthiest mental state they've ever experienced and that their meanness is just meanness rather than, Oh, that person might actually be hurting or grieving or in some way trying to grapple with something that none of us have really ever experienced before. And I think remembering that probably multiple times throughout the day is, is a spiritual discipline. I think we all need. Yeah. And, uh, and Beth Moore, if any of you follow her on Twitter, she's been uh, taking a lot of arrows from people. And uh, so for her to be able to say, hey, don't fight dirty, this, that, I think is really important. I was going through some of the comments here. Uh, and this guy by the name of Steve Cuss, he wrote, I don't know a single, by the way, how about a leader with the last name Cuss? That's good. <laughs> he, said, <laughs> he says, I don't know a single faith leader who would say that they are well right now. That is pretty sobering to discover. Feels like we're being shaken free from what we're clutching onto, but it's painful and scary for sure. 
And Beth Moore responded to him. She said, so agree. I was with a group of teachers this weekend and almost all referred in some way in their messages to having a very difficult time. I feel Mm -hmm. like this is a tremendously important thing for us to say as leaders so that people know they're not alone and we are not immune. It's like how you were just saying, we we are as leaders and just people in general, we're good at whitewashing what we do and just kind of like, hey, look at my best foot, you know, putting my best foot forward here. And in reality, uh, we need to, um, you know, show that, hey, I'm not doing well right now either. But here's some hope. Here's some good word. But I want you to know this has been hard for me. I think this is important as leaders and just regular people uh, just going, hey, you know what? We're This is a hard time. Let's just acknowledge this is a difficult season and then let's encourage one another. Yeah, and it's interesting too because in some ways, I think one of the comments here, by the way, she just said, Laura said, collective exhaustion. Like, oh yeah, that that's a good term for it. Again, I know that we're all exhausted in different ways. You know, I have like little kids and your kids are a little bit older, but like I've talked to people, single people, like, yeah, it's easier in that regard, but it's also way more isolating. Like sometimes it's yeah. been two weeks before I've even seen another human. And you're like, oh, man, I'm dealing with like toddler stuff, but that's hard on a whole other level. Part of what's tricky is one, not only the recognition that we're all struggling to some degree, but two, being mindful of our own struggle uh, and be and putting maybe extra parameters in place. Like if I've had a really rough day at work. I have to like speak to myself in preparation mm-hmm. to like re-engage with my family. Like, hey, don't bring that last conversation to the dinner table or to your interactions with your kids. I have to like actively like recognize it, like offer it back to God. And when we're feeling this collective exhaustion, this collective fatigue and grief, I think we need to be extra mindful of like I am maybe more sarcastic or more biting than I have previously because of all that I'm wearing and recognize that the other person is also fighting their own battle that I know nothing about. I think holding those intention is hard to do, but really necessary. That's uh, a good way to end the show today. We'd love to know what you think of Beth Moore's tweet. Uh, found it encouraging, found it challenging, and also just uh, a recognition that we're all going through it right now in different ways, you know, in different ways, but we're all going through this COVID-19 uh, and all that it's the craziness that it's thrown up in our lives. So speaking of craziness, the wind is still howling, the rain's still coming down. Hope you are safe out there. Ian and I are going to join you again tomorrow from 4 until 6. Hope you stay safe. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Fear life.